Hello, I'm Claire Mutimer. And I'm Susie Coulson. Welcome to The Backstory. In each episode, we'll be hearing about an experience that has happened to someone that shaped who they are. 30 minutes that remind us that everyone's dealing with something. So we're a documentary podcast, a docupod. Except you made that word up. This run of four has a particular theme. We're looking at people whose jobs involve doing good of some sort. So Claire, last week you went down to Penguin's Random House to meet with a nurse, didn't you? Yes, that's right, Susie. I went down to meet Christy Watson, who worked as a nurse and firstly wrote two fiction books and has now written a book all about nursing, which is called Language of Kindness, a nurse's story. Um, It's a great read and it chronicles all sorts of her experiences um, working in the NHS. In her introduction, she tells us that she started off her career thinking that nursing was like a combination of chemistry, biology, physics, pharmacology and anatomy, but now realises that it's actually much more about philosophy, psychology, art, ethics and politics. Oh my God, that sounds um, fascinating and full on, so I'm looking forward to this one, Claire. I know something happened in your life. Um... And I'd just like to know where you'd like to start today. After having been a nurse for many, many years, I found myself on the other side of the fence. And it was about six and a half years ago. My dad was dying uh, very quickly from lung cancer. And I was suddenly a relative instead of being a nurse. And I think at that moment, my whole understanding of nursing and my whole understanding of many things really switched and changed. That was a turning point for me. I bet it was. Um, so tell me about like the, the experience. So he, he, did, he was adamant that he didn't want to go to hospital and he didn't want to die in hospital. And so um, thanks to a really good nursing team, he was able to stay at home. And I think it's a choice that not many people have because most people don't really want to die in hospital. But the team was set up so that uh, my dad's nurse, Cheryl, could come out and be with him and uh, keep him at home. She was a nurse prescriber, so she prescribed all his drugs. She managed his care and did everything. So he was he was cared for by Cheryl and also by my mum, who did a lot of nursing as well, but the non-technical side of nursing. And and for our family, I think that was it was really important to us that he he was able to die in a way that he wanted to die. And he was a man who always lived as he wanted to live, and so that just carried on and. He, I remember a day before he died, actually, I was standing outside his bedroom and I didn't know it would be a day before he died, but Cheryl, his nurse, she'd ushered me outside and she treated me like a daughter, which is exactly right, not like a nurse. And I remember listening to him shuffling around with the sheets inside the bedroom and then he shouted, jump in, Cheryl. And she started shrieking with laughter and they just laughed and laughed and laughed and they had that brilliant relationship and friendship, which helped him be who he was until right at the very last moment and she helped him die with humour and with dignity which is exactly what he wanted. That's amazing Um, and so were you ever tempted to sort of get involved as you know having your expertise as a nurse or did you manage to sort of like kind of hold off that role? It was very hard I think it's very hard for any nurse or doctor who who has a family member going through illness because the family look to you for answers that you don't necessarily have so my background is paediatric intensive care so I don't really know anything much about adult oncology but of course when this thing happened my mum and dad were very much asking me questions about things that 
possibly no one had the answers to, like how much time and what does this mean? The other thing that was very difficult, I think, for me was knowing knowing too much in the sense that when my dad started having palliative radiotherapy, because he wanted more time, I also knew that the side effects would be horrific. And sometimes sometimes there's a thing as too much time and things start to go very badly wrong and you can end up suffering. So I've seen so much suffering, it's hard to unsee it. And I hated the idea that my dad would suffer in any way. And as it turned out, I think he didn't, he didn't have it very long because he sort of said, sod this for a game of soldiers, it's awful. Um, and, then, and then had a, a very peaceful death. But I think it's very hard when you do know too much to unknow that stuff. I bet, I bet. Um, and Cheryl like noticed really small things, didn't she? I wonder if you can tell me about that. So she, she did all the advanced things and, and it was thanks to her sort of skill and experience, I suppose, that she managed to focus on the small things. And they seemed tiny, but they were huge to my dad. So she would give his pain medication just at the right moment, just when he was about to peak with his pain, not at the time when it peaked, so that she knew, she knew him well enough by the tone of his voice and she knew the medication and the reactions he would have to the medication well enough to know just at the right moment when to give it. And also things like staying really quiet after she'd given his medication so that it had time to work before he had to have a conversation or feel like he had to have a conversation with somebody. And she opened the curtains just at the right moment. I remember that really clearly because she was judging when he could bear to look at the light and when the light was too much for him. And it was these tiny things that maybe go unnoticed when you're not a nurse, maybe, but as a nurse, I could definitely see that she was really focusing on those things and she understood the importance of those. And it was it was huge. It was in these details that made um, made such a big difference to my family. Yeah, it's such a finely sort of honed skill, isn't it? Just to, I suppose, you're watching for every little clue. Did you learn anything from Cheryl, like, despite your, like, experience that you already had? I think I learned that the job of nursing is uh, it it was a sort of recognition that nurses the vast majority of nurses do such a fantastic job on a daily basis without thinking about it so Cheryl came to my dad's funeral for example and I started thinking of the number of funerals I've been to which is a lot and all on my day off and it was her day off and and then I started thinking well you don't really see medics or doctors there or other healthcare professionals but you always see nurses and that's an astonishing thing. And then I started thinking about the fact that she was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to me and my brother because we were texting her constantly from London, which must have been so irritating when she's got a whole caseload to deal with. But she made us feel like we were the only family we were looking after. And she was looking after thousands of families probably. And again, that's the job of a nurse and that's the job I'd been doing and my colleagues have been doing so much. And even now she pops in to see my mum. And it's nearly seven years since my dad died. And so the job of the nurse doesn't really end with a shift or with the year or with the passing of the years. It's much bigger and much more than that. And so I think she, I think learning from Cheryl was learning what an amazing job nursing is and the importance of it for all of us and what, what a fantastic job that I'd been doing for so long and all my colleagues had been doing for so long. And why hadn't I been shouting about that in my writing and... And, and why was nursing the most undervalued of all the professions? So those were the kind of questions that I was starting to ask. It was it was more about questioning than learning, I think. So you went back to work 
quite quickly, I think, after your dad had died. Like, can you tell me about that? I went back to work much too soon. I went back to work before his funeral even. And my colleagues, and particularly my manager at the time, said that he thought it was much too soon. And just take just take some time off. They were a very supportive team, amazing. But I was very worried that if I didn't go back, then I may never go back at all. And so I... I went back. I remember I remember just getting through the day and just being in a daze. I'm fairly sure that's just the kind of numbness stage of grief or whatever stage of grief I was at, but just thinking, right, I've just got to get through the day and keep busy because then everything will just feel better with time. I think I'm, I was very wrong about that. But uh, when I went back to work, the first call that I had because I was on the crash team was to the oncology wards, which is inevitable I guess in life and I remember running through the ward and just seeing all these patients and families and wives and husbands who just reminded me so much of my mom and dad and and it was certain details it was everyone seemed to be wearing Marks and Spencer's pajamas which obviously my dad wore as many dads do and there was fruit on the table on the bedside tables which again is something universal in hospital but but it was untouched fruit. So there felt something really significant about that to me and sad. And then, of course, the, the smiling, the people smiling too brightly, like I guess my mum smiled too brightly and we were all smiling too brightly because what else can you do when you're going through this awful thing? And the crash call, um, it was to a patient in a side room. It, it turned out to be a false alarm. I think he had an anaphylactic reaction to something or query and the, the team were coming out saying, no, it wasn't, it's, he's fine, he's fine. But he called me in and asked me to read, read the racing results from the newspaper. And I did. I sat with him and I read these results. And I, and I think there were just too many things that reminded me of my dad about this patient, not least the racing results, <laughs> which my dad would have loved. Oh. And I'd held in tears for so long. In fact, I did really weird things like laughing at the funeral and I... I think I'd just been in total denial about the level of my own grief. Right. That all these things with this patient suddenly just made me burst into tears. And I saw his slippers again, Marks and Spencer's type slippers underneath the bed. And I just started sobbing, actually sobbing and crying so hard. And he really held me, this patient. He just pulled me towards him and he kept saying, you'll be all right, you'll be all right. And and I I remember just crying into his into his skin and, and really th- wishing, wishing this man who was a complete stranger, who was dying of cancer, would be my dad. And I remember wishing just, I just want him back for a second, just a second. And I suppose that was a pivotal moment as well because it made me realise that uh, we don't know how lucky we are until we've lost that thing. And so that was my growing up moment, I think. Hmm. And do the NHS give compassionate leave, like in a, you know, generally like quite well or because it must be it's a a different job to go back to isn't it like you know there's some jobs you can go back to and you're not faced with death and like the same things as you might have just come from but you know you need to be on your sort of top game with being a nurse in the NHS I thought I think it's the same as any employer um, that is a large organization that's struggling with numbers and finances and and the rest of it but tends to be that teams are very supportive and within teams I suppose the level of teamwork you experience in the NHS is 
perhaps greater because the stakes are higher. Yeah. So you do trust each other and you you grow a bond that is sort of more than friendship really. It becomes like a little family at work. And your your colleagues will always have your back in terms of things like that. Mm. So they'll cover for you or or people might might take sort of non-clinical work for a while or people are quite accommodating within teams. It's a very local level. It might not be organizationally led. But certainly your immediate colleagues will always try and, in my experience, try and help you out and support you through anything like that. Because they understand that, like you said, it's not, it's very re-triggering when you're going back to a job Mm. where you're around death, life and death situations all the time. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, And it sounded like it came at a tricky time for you because your marriage was finishing and, you know, did a lot of things happen at the same time? So I've never been married Oh, sorry. That's okay. (laughs) Um, I was with my ex-partner for 12 years. And, yeah, that year was the the year of doom. Uh, We we broke up. I think it was a long time coming, but perhaps that was kind of the final final thing that happened. Um, And then, uh, yeah, I, I, I very, very hazy memories of that year. I can remember my dad's funeral very well and we drove up to Liverpool because he's in the Isle of Man and we drove up to Liverpool and got the ferry across and the ferry was full of sort of family members on the way to my dad's funeral so it's the most depressing ferry ferry journey four hours across across the Irish Sea oh. of just talking about you know how we're going to get through the next few days kind of thing um, but I suppose the breakup of my relationship was very sad but in comparison with losing my dad, again, perspective is such an enormous thing. It didn't feel as big as maybe it would have done at other times. And I, I felt very, very sad for my kids, but also very sad for them that they'd lost their granddad permanently. And they have a dad and they see their dad. But I feel I feel like they as well would have said that year was awful because granddad died. Not that year was awful because we split up. Mm. Yeah. And how long did you carry on with nursing after your dad, your dad died? So I've only just come off the register about two months ago, but I stopped on the ward a couple of years ago. I just couldn't carry on. I've got a question for you, which I've always wondered about, is why do nurses work 12-hour shifts? It's 12 and a half hours. Uh, the reason is money. The reason that we're told is it's much better quality of life and family-friendly. But the actual reason is you save money if nurses work work 12 and a half hour shifts because you don't have the crossover period. So when there was earlies and lates, there would be at least an hour in the middle where the early would be on and the late would come on. And so you would have, say, for example, an early work until 2 p.m. and the late would come on at 12 and you're then paying for double the amount of nurses during that time. Right. When they're crossing over. Yeah. And of course, you cut that out if you do 12 and a half hour shifts because you cut, you've only got nights or days. Right. So it's a cost saving exercise. And like anything, you can dress that up any way you like. But my view is that if you are, for example, working Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day this year, as many of my nursing friends are. Yeah. Uh, who've got families. They can't afford to live in cities. So they might not live in London, but work in London, for example. And so they live an hour and a half away. So that's three hours on your 12 and a half hour shift if you get away in time, yeah. which you may well not at this time of year. And what happens now, because uh, 
because nurses are so strapped financially is that they're often working other jobs in the days off when they it was sold that they would be with their families right or they're working extra shifts which are still 12 and a half hour shifts wow so is there like anything that we can do to like value nurses better do you think so the government scrapped the nursing bursary last year in england and that's a training bursary that enables nurses to train with a little bit of money it's not much in scotland they actually put the bursary up so nurses training in scotland get ten thousand pounds a year student nurses in england are having to work three jobs as well as train as a student nurse and they're also working nights and these these awful shifts that we're talking about and when they are at work it's so busy that they are quite literally missing meals skipping drinking water for fear that they'll have to nip to the toilet and what that means is that the nurse dropout rate is astonishing so people don't get to the end of their training and when they do get to the end of the training nurses are leaving the NHS fast and then they're joining so retention is a massive massive problem when they when they scrapped the bursary nurse numbers nurse training numbers went down by a third almost immediately and it was the mature students and students who wanted to train in mental health and learning disabilities nursing right who actually didn't apply so the numbers are really really seriously worrying about 42,000 nurses short in England and the effects of that are going to be that we will hear over this winter time and time again that there are no beds when we hear that there are no beds it doesn't mean there isn't a physical bed it means there is no nurse to look after the patient in that bed and that's something that the media haven't really picked up on and you said that you couldn't carry on with nursing any longer can you can you tell me why that was and what the pressures were on you I've at various point in my career felt burnt out or compassion fatigue or there are lots of different names for things I'm fairly sure I had post-traumatic stress symptoms at various times from all the things I've seen and touched and smelled and and not got any support for um and at various times I thought I can't carry on but I did carry on (laughs) and then the following week something would happen which would be amazing And, and nursing is the hardest job in the world but it's also the best job in the world and it is the most rewarding and the rewarding times are so rewarding that it does it spurs you on through the really difficult times and so I've looked after lots of patients that I thought for example wouldn't make it despite our best efforts who've just surprised me and given me hope in in very dark times and I carried on nursing for a long time after I've had periods of thought thinking I won't do it anymore and then the final thing that changed and the reason I gave up was a very practical reason it was I just couldn't physically manage teaching and nursing and writing and um, I mean my writing now I'm I'm regularly working 60 or 70 hours a week writing doing PR traveling and all the other stuff that goes with writing so I just physically don't have any time to nurse Um, so I never left the profession in terms of thinking that's it I'm done but I'd certainly had moments where I felt like that and then something had changed and I remembered why I did it in the first place which is that it's a bit like sitting at an airport. You know when you sit at an airport and you see people and you see love close up and you see people coming and going. Hospitals can be like that. You see people at their most extreme and that's sometimes really bad, but mostly, for the most part, you see you see love close up and that's, that's an amazing thing to work with.
Oh, wow, that was brilliant. I really feel like we should get Christy together with Richard Curtis. You know, there could be a, a brilliant film to be made about the NHS. That's true. Yeah, she's got that real ability, hasn't she, to make you realise the highs and lows of nursing and I guess how weirdly addictive it is whilst being incredibly tough. Yes, very true. I would really recommend the book she has written, The Language of Kindness. Um, it's full of vignettes of nursing life and her career. In fact, Adam Kay, um, the doctor who wrote the bestseller, This Is Going To Hurt. Uh, yeah, it's on my, my shelf of books waiting to be read. Well, it's a cracker. Yeah. Like, um, so he wrote a review in The Guardian about Christie's book and said out of the 57 med- medical memoirs, this was the one to resuscitate his faith in the genre. Ah, it's kind of high praise. Exactly. Um, and in fact, he, he was sort of spot on with the, with the whole review of her book, actually. So that's also worth, worth a read, um, his review. Yeah, definitely. I think what's really great is that whilst Christie's no longer a nurse, she's clearly a very strong voice and advocate for nursing and, you know, highlighting the problems such as the dropping numbers of nurses. You know, I had no idea that when we hear about there being no beds regularly actually what that means is that there are no nurses it's not that there aren't the beds it's that there aren't the nurses yeah I didn't realize that either you know in the shortfall of 4,000 nurses in England alone which sounds absolutely shocking yeah I think with all the talk around Brexit at the moment that some of these sort of home problems are just being completely missed do you think yeah, right. okay. it is a worry. Uh, so talking of Brexit, how was your Christmas, Susie? Did you manage to avoid the subject or was everyone talking about it? No, they weren't talking about it too much. I think we we're all coming from a fairly similar place. We were talking about whether we should be having a second referendum. It's that kind of quandary, isn't it, between whether we whether we should be having a second referendum or not. And I think my feeling is that whether we do or whether we don't, we shouldn't be going for a hard Brexit because the the vote was so close that actually there isn't a mandate for a hard Brexit. So that's kind of, that's my focus at the moment. But honestly, we don't have enough time to go into the full... We're going to move on. <laughs> we could on go Brexit, on for hours not, and hours There's enough radio this. time being given there to is. Brexit, isn't there? But... Um, yeah, I was I was pleased that we did have one admission from a family member that they should never have voted to leave. So that was a satisfying mm. moment over the Christmas period. Um, but mostly, we, yeah, we kept off the subject. Safe. So now we've had three podcasts in our season for people working to do good. Have you seen any links between them, Susie? Like, does it make you feel like doing more good? <laughs> do you know, I think it's highlighted the toll that these jobs take on the workers. Obviously, Christy talked about the 12 and a half hour shifts, which is just phenomenal, and the lack of nurses and the burnout that she experienced. And we didn't even go into the night shifts, which, you know, I think there's a lot of research that night shifts have been proven to shave years off your life. They're really not good for you at all, are they? Yeah, I I had a look into this and like they've even done a huge study of nurses in the States. Um, they've studied 75,000 female registered nurses for 22 years. Okay, that's um, pretty extensive. Yeah, it's pretty extensive, isn't it? And it included an interview with each nurse every other year. So, um, and of the, women, of the women who worked rotating night shifts um, for more than six years, apparently 11% experienced a shortened lifespan, which increased like the longer they had worked those kind of shifts. Um, and women who worked rotating night shifts for more than 15 years also experienced a 25% higher risk of death due to lung cancer so what what are those kind of i don't know if they've just driven them to smoking (laughs) (laughs) okay so the the lung cancer may be but what what are the um 
what are the risks associated with well apparently like one of the points that really stood out for me was like eating a triple chocolate muffin in the middle of the night no that's just a sort of example but the sugar and the fat hang around in your bloodstream for much longer than if you'd eaten it during the day okay so your body is metabolizing yeah we don't adjust to night shifts like we thought we did sort of thing we don't adjust to night shifts like we thought we did. And high blood sugar levels like, are obviously significantly higher in people who are working night shifts. So that can right. lead to type 2 diabetes. And yeah. the raised fat levels can cause heart disease. Um, it may also explain like high levels of obesity in, in those working at night. Yeah, and certainly when I've watched One Born Every Minute, you know, they always have like, some biscuits or a big tin of roses or something on the go. You know, I guess it's the only way to get through those shifts, isn't it? To yeah. stock up on sugar. Yeah, that's the thing. When you're feeling particularly tired, um, you kind of, you want chocolate and instant energy much more, don't you? So it's kind of like a double effect because you're also not burning it off so well. Yeah, I get we're getting dangerously close to just talking about our own habits here so let's move swiftly on um do we have a podcast recommendation claire for this week yeah so with our backstory season in mind of people doing good and last week's story of nikki and alan who worked for norwich's homeless charity um i noticed that the untold put out a similar story um just after us last week Um, so for anyone that doesn't know the untold is the bbc one with grace dent isn't it exactly yeah um and it's called no place for the homeless um and based in corby and it was about a woman who is trying to set up a homeless shelter um and was coming up against quite a lot of opposition so yeah okay so kind of a an ongoing yeah sort of an unfolding story yeah really yeah it was great fantastic okay thank you I will have a listen to that so what are your dare I ask what are your new year's resolutions are you making any new year's resolutions what do you think of them well I, I, yeah, I was thinking about New Year's resolutions and I sort of looked up a bit about this and apparently 90% of New Year's resolutions fail very early on. So I sort of thought, right, should I just leave New Year's resolutions and assume that 2019 is going to be the same as 2018? Um, but apparently research has shown that setting an easy New Year's resolution is actually easier than just trying to maintain the status quo. So I'm going with that. And so I'm going with some goal is definitely better than no goal. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. But just make it fairly easy. Um, And hopefully I'm going to be able to stick to it. So. Okay. So what kind of things? What's a a super modest goal? Well, yeah. Apparently taking up a a sort of pleasant hobby can have like significant impacts on your well-being and joyful resolutions are sort of much easier to keep. Okay. So kind of something, a resolution to do something that that you'll want to do rather than depriving yourself. Exactly. Yeah. It feels like a positive. positive. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so, yeah. So something that is kind of giving yourself something rather than taking something away okay so i've booked you in for synchronized swimming (laughs) course (laughs) i've just spent the morning swimming with eight children so swimming is the last thing i want to do at the moment um no i think that i think there's a lot to be said for that i think that if you achieve if you set yourself a a sort of realistic smallish target and you achieve it then it spurs you on to do more doesn't it exactly you feel encouraged by that rather than aiming really high just just don't aim high, basically, Claire. I know. We say it to each other every day. Just don't aim too high and you'll be happy. Slowly, um, slowly So, yeah, so my only resolution that I've come up with so far, maybe you've got one for me, Susie, but I, um, I'm going to sleep with my phone in another room. I mean, I'm going to with sleep. With your phone? I'm going to sleep. <laughs> what will your husband say about this? I think I'll have a lot more fun with it. No, I mean, I'm going to sleep in another room from my phone. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, and I brought a special clock um, for 
uh, patch of Christmas, which wakes you with glowing lights and the sound of birds. Oh, my so God. I just think it's the curtains drawn and let sunlight do the same. No, but imagine we've been wake up to late o'clock, would we? Well, that's true at this time of year. No, that, that's fine. Well, I have no resolution. Well, no, I do have a bit of a resolution, which is just to kind of use a bit less, just a bit less everything, a bit less food, a bit less drink, a bit less, you know. Use a little bit less. Yeah, consume a little bit less oh, right. of everything. God, you're going to waste away to nothing, Susie. Oh, Christ, not after the amount of Christmas cake I've just eaten. Anyway, okay, well, on that cheery note, resolutions under our belt. Happy New Year to you. Um, apparently, it's the year of the pig, by the way, Claire, just in case you were wondering. So, <laughs> so let's hope 2019 is good for everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. We are The Backstory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at The Backstory Pod on Twitter. Search for The Backstory with Claire and Susie in your podcast directory. For sponsorship opportunities, or if you'd like to take part in a show, please contact hello at thebackstorypodcast.co.uk. The Backstory Podcast is produced by Tin Shared Productions.